Welcome to the Positive Productivity Podcast, Episode 250. Are you a small business owner using Infusionsoft who's struggling to figure out how to take your business to the next level? Well, I might have a solution for you. Head on over to thecamsutton.com forward slash Infusionsoft to visit my campaign page and see the campaigns that I have seen successfully work time and time again for my clients. Again, that's thekimsutton.com forward slash Infusionsoft. The Positive Productivity Podcast was created to empower entrepreneurs to achieve and appreciate personal and professional success. I'm your host, Kim Sutton, and if you're ready, let's jump into today's episode. Welcome back to another episode of Positive Productivity. This is your host, Kim Sutton, and I'm so happy that you are here to join us today. I am thrilled to introduce our guest of the day, Dory Clark. Dory is the author of Entrepreneurial You and the founder of Clark Strategic Communications. Dory, welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Oh, you are welcome. Dory, you have such a fascinating backstory, even just how young you even entered college, which I'm blown away because I know it. What, 16? That I, uh, I wouldn't 14, have been in. 14, actually. Oh my gosh. 14 for me was focusing on boys and all the trivial stuff. So I would love if you would share some of your backstory with the listeners and then we can jump into further conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So yes, I, I did uh, go to college early. I grew up in a little town in North Carolina and was pretty eager to uh, to get out and to do, you know, what I considered to be a little more exciting stuff. I wanted culture and, uh, you know, just the, the big city excitement and, and to feel like I was really stepping into the kind of life that I wanted. So went to college, finished up and went straight into divinity school. Actually, I went to uh, Harvard Divinity School. And after I graduated, I became a newspaper reporter for uh, an alternative news weekly in Boston, which now is defunct like a lot of newspapers. But for better or for worse, I was part of the early vanguard of uh, people who got laid off. And so it set me off on this path. Otherwise, I probably would have remained in journalism. But I got laid off, could not find another job in journalism. And so I was forced to essentially keep reinventing myself until I found something that stuck. And so I had a lot of career adventures along the way. I ended up working in politics. I had been a political reporter. So that was kind of a natural transition. And so I did press on a couple of campaigns, uh, one for Massachusetts governor, another, uh, there was a presidential campaign. Unfortunately, both of my guys lost and uh, ran a nonprofit for a couple of years. And eventually 11 years ago, started my own business. And so since then, I've, I've been in the world of, of entrepreneurship and it sort of led me to where I am today. I have a new book about how to create multiple income streams in your business. And so I've really been working to try to uh, to develop that and expand that in my own life. As we chatted about in our pre-chat, I've, I've been hearing you since our introduction on every day you pop up in my podcast feed. That would be an understatement probably. And I heard about the income streams, but before I get into that with you, I do have a question Divinity school to journalism. How does that happen? Like, I, I wouldn't have put the two together. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, the main way that it happens is that I originally thought that I wanted to have a career in academia. And so I finished my master's degree in theology and uh, I applied to 
several doctoral programs and I actually didn't get into any of them. And so I was like, oh, okay. What other profession allows me to read and write a lot? And I thought, oh, well, maybe journalism. And so, uh, you know, I think for a lot of us, our 20s are this, you know, time of kind of flailing around a little bit and just, you know, figuring, you know, trying to mix and match your skills and your interests with professions that have some semblance of, uh, you know, similar similar skills or overlap. And so that that was the goal for me. I, I was somebody who was intellectually curious, liked having, you know, the, the so-called life of the mind. <laughs> and and academia was, was choice number one. But since that didn't work out, I thought, okay, well, you know, journalism is kind of the real world application of that. So So let me give that a go. If any of those doctorate programs came back today and offered to let you into their program free of charge, what would you say? That's a great question, actually. I would not be interested now for a couple of reasons. One is just at a basic level, the opportunity cost, because to get a humanities doctorate, it is at the very, very short end, maybe five years. Uh, tip, more typically, it's like a seven-ish year process. And I'm 39 right now. And I, I these are like my prime working years, my prime earning years. It's a little bit of a different story. I mean, I was applying to these things when I was 20 years old. And so the idea of spending, you know, 20 to 27 doing it and then, you know, emerging ready for my career seemed like a good educational investment at the time. Right now, it would not be from a, a dollars and cents perspective, even if it were free, because there's other things that I could be doing with my time and having a, a bigger impact because I've I've spent the intervening years building up kind of brand and platform and reach that I'm doing interesting things. I mean, you know, it's nice to cocoon yourself for seven years if you don't have something better to do. But I feel like fortunately, I'm in the position where now I do. Uh, the other thing that I came to learn that I didn't really appreciate at the time is that being in a doctoral program is actually very different than being an undergrad. I, I really didn't grasp that fully. Being an undergrad is this wonderful time of intellectual exploration, and you are encouraged to take a bunch of different classes, explore different disciplines, really just like go nuts with interdisciplinarity. But uh, in grad school, it's all, you know, in, for doctoral programs, it's all about narrowing down, focusing, uh, ultimately writing your dissertation about a very narrow cast uh, slice of a subject. And, you know, I mean, just by way of example, I once briefly went out with with someone who was uh, who who ended up abandoning a doctoral program but when i was asking about what she had been working on it was <laughs> i mean it's like this it's like hysterical it was the use of it was how the transition from gold to paper money was handled in 18th century british literature it's like, who who the F cares about that? You know, I mean, it's so abstruse. And that's the kind of thing that you would write a dissertation on. And to become an expert in something like that, I, I actually think in retrospect would have been terrible. It would have been mind numbing for me because I, I think that uh, what the world needs a little bit more of is people who can make connections with different fields rather than than going so deep on something that is of questionable interest or value. Yeah, that actually makes my stomach turn. Just thinking about <laughs> it. I, I'm, to all of you who can write a paper so specific, bravo to you, but that is something that I never even want to attempt. Let me just put it that way. Yeah. 
I have enough trouble staying on topic on a broad range, like a broad range article that I write. So no, that just wouldn't work for me. Totally. I have overcome a lot of adversity and I'm, I know that listeners have as well. You lost your job on 9-10-2001. However, I want to go back a little bit further than that. I know that going into college at, at a young age is such an accomplishment, but what type of adversity did you face through then? Did you have to do a lot of work to prove that you had to be there? You know, I feel actually very lucky about how that turned out and how I was able to do it because, first of all, it was a program that I was part of. So it, it certainly would have been a challenge if I was carving the path, like if people had not done that before, it might be an uphill battle to convince people that a younger student could do it. But uh, I entered a program at Mary Baldwin College, now Mary Baldwin University, which was, you know, to the everlasting mortification of everyone who went through the program, uh, is called the PEG, the Program for the Exceptionally Gifted. And uh, anyway, they had been operating for, you know, over a decade by the time that I did it. They started in the early 80s. So they had they had a track record and you had a cohort of other young women who were doing the same thing. So it wasn't so strange. It wasn't like me and then a bunch of traditional age college students. There was about 50-ish people who were in this program and we lived together in a dorm and it was it was an established thing. So, oh wow! Yeah, so I didn't I didn't have to convince the world like, oh, I am so unique. I have to do this thing that's never been done before. I really just had to convince them like, okay, you have this program. I would be a good fit for this program, uh, which, which is a much easier hurdle. Maybe I'm just looking back at who I was at that time. You know, I was trying so hard to fit in, and I can't imagine going into a traditional university system surrounded by students who were four to eight years older than me and. It was just so important to me then, but it's not, I really don't care about fitting in now. <laughs> yes, I, that's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is why I'm just so ridiculously transparent sometimes on, on this show. Yeah. Dory, I am, I'm going to be 39 in March, so I'm right there in the same decade, somewhere between whatever generation and whatever generation. I really don't pay attention to what the names are. And I know that I really should, but again, yeah. I, I don't do what other people tell me to. According so, to the demographers, we are we are the youngest Xers. Yeah. But I don't feel like I relate, you know? Yeah. Like but I also don't feel like I relate to what is it, Gen X? No. The one before so the, the the boomers would be older and the and the millennials would be just after us. Yeah. So okay. See I told you I don't I just don't follow. I don't connect to the millennials either. And I do a lot of marketing and you do marketing, but isn't it fascinating that looking back to when we were growing up, marketing as we know it today in terms of social media marketing, it just wasn't, well, it wasn't around. As you say on your website, I mean, we grew up in the pre-internet era. Yeah. And if there was internet, it was like, you know, that <laughs> very bad impersonation of dial-up. That was good, though. I, I totally got it. Sometimes I, I think that if I could go back and do college again, that I would go into marketing. Mm. But I realized that, I mean, when I entered college, it was 1997. So there was, I mean, dial-up was just starting, but Facebook still wasn't around. So I really can't say that because it wouldn't have existed. 
if you could go back and do college any different and do a different major, would you? I actually, I went to uh, so liberal arts school. So Mary Baldwin, where I started, was a liberal arts college. And then I transferred after two years to Smith uh, in Western Massachusetts, which is also a liberal arts school. So one of the, <laughs> one of the things that gives me a, li- a little bit of delight is that Despite you know getting uh, getting turned turned down for these doctoral programs and things like that, I actually do uh, teach at the university level now, and I've taught both you know undergrads and graduate students and uh, ex- pro- you know professionals who are part of executive MBA programs or executive education programs, and I've never. I, I not only don't have an MBA, I've also literally never taken a business class because it was never offered. That wasn't that wasn't a thing they had at, at my schools. So I've kind of had to create something new, which has been a lot of fun. But you know, I I liked my education a lot overall. The one thing that I would change, which is uh, possibly a little abstruse, but it was it was important to me. At Mary Baldwin, I got really into philosophy, which is which ultimately my major, and I carried that through when I went to Smith. But what I didn't realize, because you know I didn't really have the kind of overall context, and they somehow didn't mention this at Mary Baldwin. Apparently, in American academia, there's really two major strands of tradition. There is continental philosophy, which, as the name implies, is what is more commonly practiced in Europe. And that is a little bit more like, let's call it black beret, what is the meaning of life kind of philosophy. And uh, and then what is more commonly done in the US is the Anglo-American tradition of philosophy, which is, I would argue, it's also known as uh, analytic philosophy. And so it's much more philosophy as a modified form of cognitive psychology or neuroscience or linguistics or something like that. It's like philosophy trying to solve analytic puzzles. I find the latter to be pretty boring, I'll be honest. It's uh, it's a lot more arcane and I feel like just a little bit more like navel-gazy and I just connected much better to continental philosophy. And so Mary Baldwin specialized in that. And I had no idea that the way that they did philosophy was very different than almost any other university in the U.S. And so when I got to Smith and I discovered that they were all into analytic philosophy, I was like, what is this? This isn't even philosophy. And then I realized like, oh, what what I actually liked was this thing that is very hard to find. And and I hadn't realized that. And so I ended up with a philosophy major because it just made a lot more sense in terms of the credits and the distribution and whatever to just go ahead and finish up the philosophy major. But I was unhappy uh, with that. And so if I had known then what I know now, I would instead have been an English literature Mm. major. I I didn't realize there were two different sects. Um, yes, sect yeah. is a good word. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I agree with you. the The second half sort of bores me as well. I want to fast forward a little bit. You lost your job in two thousand one, and then you started your business in two thousand six. Can you share what that journey looked like and what it looks like for you today? Yeah. So, what really prompted me to start my business was, you know, so in this 
five-year period between losing my job as a reporter and starting my business, I did you know, a few things. As I mentioned, I worked on political campaigns and then I, uh, I ran a nonprofit for a couple of years. And during the course of running the nonprofit, I realized that, uh, you know, it, it was, it took a while before it really hit me, but I realized that running a nonprofit was literally the exact same thing as running a business. I hadn't ever thought of it that way. And I had honestly never really thought about running a business or wanting to run a business. But when I was in the midst of it, I realized like, oh, that's what I'm doing. And then immediately on the heels of that, I realized, oh, it would be so much less stressful if I actually were running my own business as compared to running this nonprofit where I'm responsible for staff and we have to earn so much of our money through donations and just appealing to people. I mean, that was that was an extraordinarily high stress job for me. So I just got entranced by the idea of doing it for myself, where I could be learning and autonomous and probably also having less stress and making more money. And so I spent the last year of my time running MassBike, my nonprofit, just kind of plotting to uh, to go out on my own. And I took classes and I read a bunch of books. And so I prepared myself. And then finally, in 2006, I launched I heard on another podcast, you mentioned that you don't have a logo. You've never had a logo in the last 12 years. And I love that you brought that up because I see so many entrepreneurs getting held up by little things like logos at the beginning. And on a side note, I have a logo, but to me and listeners, I don't know if it will still be up on the site. So when this episode goes live, it looks like a butt. <laughs> It's a gear. It's a gear that's supposed to look like a light bulb. Um, that's great. Yeah. And every time I go to my site and I see it, I just think it looks like a butt. And now it will start looking like a butt to other people too. So I'm hoping that it will be down by the time this episode goes live. <laughs> that's that's incredible. But I have to say that I held off from launching this podcast because the logo was not down yet. And I wish that I had just pushed ahead, you know, put my name, put the podcast name on and just gone ahead and well, yeah, just pushed go. Is there anything during your work that you've seen holding entrepreneurs up from just going other than logos? <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely there's, there's a lot of things. I think that probably the biggest hurdle for people and they don't necessarily even recognize that this is a hurdle because they feel like they feel like they're doing work, right? This is this is the the tricky part. Everybody knows that if you are saying I'm I'm starting my business, I'm starting my business and if you're like watching cat videos on the internet, okay, that's procrastinating. That's that's not doing your work. We can all agree on that. But what is far more insidious is the things that feel like work and yet are not really work. And so I, I actually talk about this in my new book, Entrepreneurial You, that, you know, social media, for instance, is is one of these things. Again, if you're just like really screwing around on it, you, you know it, but it's very easy to convince yourself, oh, well, obviously big stars or whatever, they have a big Facebook presence or they have a big Instagram presence. So I need that too. And so you know, you'll spend like several hours a day, you know, building your Facebook presence. And the truth is that, yes, it is. It is true that if you're 
a big celebrity of some sort, you, you probably do have a large social following. But it does not necessarily go the other way that, oh, the most important thing for building your business is having a large uh, social media following. In fact, that's something that often is a huge distraction. What you need to focus on more than anything in the beginning, and, and I think this is the part where I did plenty of things wrong when I started my business, but this is something I did right, was I understood from the beginning that you don't have a business if you don't have clients. Job number one is getting a client who will pay you money. And I think that any of these other things like, oh, I've got to make my website really nice, or I've got to you know, do social media, or oh, I've got to see about getting some speaking engagement. Like, yes, those are all great things to do. You know, By no means am I saying don't do them, but those are things that will indirectly get you clients. And what you need in the beginning is to directly get a client. And the way that you directly get a client is you freaking call people on the phone or you send them a personal note or something like that. And you say, here is what I do. Do you need this thing? Or do you know someone who needs that thing? And if you do, will you introduce us? Like that's the thing. There's an element of personal risk involved psychologically for people because they don't want to be turned down. And so they don't do that one thing that is the most critical thing for them to be doing. And so that is, in fact, a form of procrastination. So I, I think I think the worst the worst thing you can do is to trick yourself into thinking you're working when you're not. Thank you so much for bringing that up. I wish that we had had this conversation three years ago. <laughs> I am past it now, but in 2015, I was literally part of 180 Facebook groups. Whoa. And yes, and I turned on notifications for them all. Oh my gosh. Because yes, so I would spend, I'm glad I don't know the number, but just imagine the number of hours every day trying to keep up with the Joneses, watching what other people were doing, trying to chime in. And it was such a waste of time. I, Looking back, I am not surprised now why it was such a huge financial struggle in 2018. Yeah. Especially because with what I do, my ideal clients are not spending their time in Facebook groups. They're out there producing their work. Yep. Yeah. That's exactly right. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of like, you know, go, going to networking events, which is, you know, quote unquote, which is yet another way that people waste a lot of time, you know. And when I say a networking event, I mean something that is kind of like this open this open call like hey the chamber's having a mixer like that kind of thing because those those are the things that other people who are not busy are going to <laughs> people who are not busy are like hey maybe I can meet some people and it's like very diffuse and they don't care that it's very diffuse because they don't have anything better going on but the minute you start to get traction in your business and you're successful you're like, oh my God, I absolutely don't have time to waste two and a half hours mixing with random people. That's the last place you'd go. And so, um, you know, the more successful folks are only willing to go to very tightly curated events where they feel like there's a, a high probability that they will meet uh, high performers. Oh, absolutely. I just realized I say, yeah, absolutely, right, a lot. And I've been asked several times why I don't attend a couple networking groups here in my small town in Ohio. And that is exactly why, because I realized that it was a waste of time, even though it was only once a month. My ideal client is not the owner of the local car repair shop or the local salon owner. And I think we need right. to be a lot more clear on who our ideal client is 
before we're picking where we're spending our time. I'm not saying, yeah, yeah. I mean, BNI and those type of networking groups are going to work for some people. But I think as we're really becoming more clear on our message and who we're serving, that's, yeah, we have to be much more, I am not a walking dictionary, cognizant, aware, whatever word is appropriate of, of where that's going. Absolutely. Would you mind talking a little bit about Reinventing You? I certainly can do that. Yeah, Reinventing You was my first book that came out in 2013. And it was really something that was sparked by a blog post that I initially wrote for the Harvard Business Review. And it was it was kind of inspired by my first, you know, my my personal experience with getting laid off and having to reinvent myself got me interested in the topic. And so I began to look into what that process looked like. You know, how was it for other people? What did they do? How did they reinvent successfully? Because I felt like when I was doing reinvention, I didn't really have a good strategy or plan. I was just kind of bungling along and, you know, it all worked out, but it was not the most efficient thing in the world. And so I realized that if there actually were a template, if there actually were what could essentially be a guidebook or some guideposts, that would be hopefully valuable to other people. So I set out to create that. And so I interviewed um, several dozen people who were high-level professionals that had reinvented themselves successfully to try to extrapolate key principles that people could follow if they wanted to change jobs, if they wanted to change careers, etc. And so it's been a, a, a great journey, a great process. Dory, one of the things that I found to be a struggle was not saying yes to everything as I was growing my business. I knew that I needed to bring clients in. I knew I had to build my reputation. So I thought that I needed to accept everybody who came my way. Was that ever a struggle for you? Yeah, I I mean, I think it's a struggle for everyone, but it's definitely a problem largely because it's not a skill that you need to be good at in the beginning of your business. In fact, what's tricky about it is that in the early stages of your business, you kind of want to say yes to everything because you don't really know what your business model is. You don't really know who your clients are. You know, you know, you have no idea what's going to pay off for you. And so you kind of have to figure that out by experimenting. And so saying yes to a bunch of things is a useful learning process. But at a certain point, once you do gain that focus, it becomes important for you to shift your behaviors. You sort of shift into the more developed mode of understanding, oh, right, I need to not be wasting my time doing all this because I have some clarity now. And so at that point, you need to develop the no muscle. But you've gotten in the habit of being successful by saying yes to everything. And of course, we have our cultural baggage about not wanting to to disappoint people or something like that. So I think it is something that that we all struggle with, understanding when to make that shift and then learning how to do it graciously. I love how you said no muscle. The no muscle must be with the arm muscle that prohibits me from doing a pull up to this point because it has been so hard to develop and I'm finally getting there. I mean, I have a I have a wonderful client who always wants to send referrals my way and it's taken when she's offered these referrals, like it's taken no joke two years to finally start saying, no, that's not the work I'm looking for right now, because I didn't want to let her down. But I was also in scarcity mindset of, okay, if I say no to this, 
is there going to be something better that follows? And I finally realized that yes, but I'm not going to be able to take the something better that follows unless I say no to this now. Mm -hmm. Yes, very true. I want to jump back to your multiple income streams. Would you mind sharing a little bit about that with the listeners, please? Yeah, sure. So when I first started my business, like probably most people, I had one income stream, which was doing marketing strategy consulting. So essentially, I would write marketing plans for companies. That was the basic idea of what I did. And so for a few years, that that was really all I did. I mean, you know, sort of variations of it, but same type of thing. But over time, I began to expand out into some other directions. And at first, it wasn't super strategic, but I knew I wanted to write a book. So I started doing that. And then, of course, once you land a contract and get a little bit of money for it, then, you know, that's another income stream, albeit a relatively small one. I also knew I wanted to do some executive ed teaching. So I began moving into that. So I was adding more. But then at a certain point, I came to realize, oh, you know, this isn't just, you know, this sort of cool little things I'm doing on the side. This is actually a valuable diversification strategy in my business. It is proactively a good thing to be diversifying my income stream because it's a way of mitigating risk. And so I began to to think more about how I could do that. And so I began building out other areas. And you know, the great news is that as you develop new revenue streams, other things become possible for you. So for instance, when I published my first book, Reinventing You, I started to get offers for paid speaking engagements. Now, speaking was something that I had always done in my business, but no one wanted to pay me for it. <laughs> but uh, but once my book came out, it became something that um, that was like, oh, you are, you are legitimate enough to get paid for this. So I began getting that as, as a source of revenue. Some things I, I handled very strategically, like I knew I wanted to go into online courses. And so I started experimenting, first doing uh, some courses with with other entities uh, and, and me being sort of the, you know, the hired help, as it were, doing the course. And then eventually in 2016, I launched my first independently developed online course uh, called Recognized Expert. And so I, I launched that and uh, that became a, a source of revenue. And interestingly, the people who were involved in that, they began to say, hey, we'd like to meet in person. We'd like to connect. And so that opened up a new line, which was doing live events. So over time, if you're moving strategically and you're looking for opportunities, you you really can find ways to develop multiple income streams in your business. And Dory, the book I am working on is Chronic Idea Disorder, Overcoming Idea Overwhelm for Entrepreneurs. That's great. Yes. For me, like I would love to have multiple income sources. Uh, However, I have struggled myself with chronic idea disorder. I love how you say that you've been strategic, but do you have one tip for, you know, staying on focus and getting, you know, making sure that you're not doing way too much at a time? For sure. I think the, the first thing to keep in mind is that I would advise people definitely only focus on adding one new income stream per year. You know, to somebody who has lots of ideas and, you know, I mean, I count myself among them, that might sound frustrating, like, oh, but I want to do this and this and this. But the truth is, you know, the time is going to pass anyway, right? And it is almost a certainty that if you're like, I'm going to add half a dozen new income streams this year, it's just not going to go well. You know, you're going to be pulled in too many directions. You're not going to be able to focus. But meanwhile, if you add one a year and you just say, okay, you know, 
like five, six years from now, I'm going to have all these income streams. That's pretty badass. But you, you just have to be systematic about saying, okay, just because I can't do something now doesn't mean it's not going to happen. It just means not yet. It just means I'm focusing on this thing now and then I can reevaluate it. And so in fact, I've actually even developed a methodology to kind of control myself and hopefully it could help other people as well. So I, I have this, this uh, short online course, I, I call it a masterclass called Be More Productive. And my Be More Productive Masterclass actually shares a methodology that I developed around goal setting, which is that number one, instead of annual goals, I am a believer in six-month goals because they can be reviewed and evaluated more systematically. And number two, you should only have two overarching professional goals at a time. So meaning, let's say you want to start a podcast and a video series, and you want to uh, focus on your professional speaking, and you want to write a book. You know, I mean, these are all good goals. These They're not bad choices, but it would be a bad choice to try to do them all at once. So you say, okay, I'm going to pick two, and for six months, I'm going to go nuts on them. That is what I'm going to focus on, you know, of course, above and beyond whatever sort of administrative tasks you have you know we all have to do email and stuff but in terms of a primary focus you focus on two things and then at six months you reevaluate and if it's going well if you like it if you're making progress great you re-up for another six months if you don't or if, if you don't like it or if it's already become amazingly successful and now you're done well great then you can pick something else to add to the plate but the key of the be more productive methodology is understanding that there is a limited number of slots on the plate you just shifted my whole next 90 days. Boom. And, yeah. Fantastic. Thank you <laughs> so much. Dory, this has been an incredible conversation. I feel like we've just scratched the surface and I'd love to bring you back at a future date, whenever is convenient for you. But I want to be respectful of your time and also the time of the listeners. Where can listeners get in touch with you, learn more, find out more about what you do? Yeah, thank you so much, Kim. The best place to send folks is my is my website, doryclark.com. It's D-O-R-I-E-C-L-A-R-K. It is the repository of more than 500 free articles that I've written for places like Forbes and the Harvard Business Review and all kinds of things. So they can they can really go go deep there. And I also do have a free resource in particular for people who are interested in expanding into multiple revenue streams. That is my free 88-question entrepreneurial you self-assessment that actually walks people through how to apply the principles of developing multiple income streams to their own business. And so if anyone would like to get that, they can at doryclark.com slash entrepreneur. Fabulous. Listeners, if you are driving and can't write that down right now, you can go to thekimsutton.com forward slash PP250, where you'll find all the show notes and eventually a transcription. Dory, thank you again so much for coming on. Do you have a last thing? Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just, felling over here. Thanks, Kim. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a last piece of parting advice or a golden nugget that you can offer to listeners? Yeah, thank you. Um, it's been great to have the chance to talk with your with your folks. And I would just say that um, developing multiple income streams is something that, you know, it's never, it's never urgent, exactly. And it's a lot easier sometimes for people to just continue doing what they're doing. But I think that in terms of building the long-term stability and resiliency of your business, it's one of the most important things that you can do and invest the time in because it really is like the proverbial table. When times get tough for whatever reason, you know, technological change or economic disruption or just swings in the overall economic cycles – you want more legs on your table. You want to have more options because if one door gets closed, 
you become much more able to adapt if you have other things that you can lean on. And so that's part of why it's become so valuable for me. You can earn more money and it makes you um, more stable and, and resilient. 